Well, hey guys, welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. So we are back in this series called What Seems Impossible. Adam Duckworth, uh, our volunteer coordinator, kind of dreamed up this series and he started it a couple of weeks ago. We took a break last week to kind of get ready for Thanksgiving. So I hope you guys did have a good Thanksgiving. I was over in Naples with my folks. It was fun. Um, And like I told you, our motto is that we don't eat until we're full. We eat until we hate ourselves. And so we accomplished that. We started at noon, done by two. I was on the couch for two and a half hours, which is good when you start early because you can digest a little bit. And so you can eat more later on that night and really just look at yourself in the mirror and go, you are disgusting. I hate you. Okay, but that was life and it was fun. But we are back. We are wrapping up this series, What Seems Impossible. So if you haven't been here so far in this series, or if you've kind of forgotten, because, you know, that was three weeks ago and a lot has happened since then. Let me kind of just bring you up to date as to what is happening in, in this kind of conversation. We're in the Old Testament. We're talking about this guy named Nehemiah. Let me just move this a little bit so everyone can see it. Talking about a guy named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is just really a regular guy. Um, the Bible talks about the fact that he had this job known as a cupbearer to the king. And what's interesting about this job is that in a way, it's a coveted position, meaning he has ultimate access to the king. He, he is next to the king at all times. He can have conversations. He is basically, he's not his right-hand man, but he's at his right hand. The downside of being a cupbearer is that he has to taste all the wine to make sure it's not poisoned. And if he dies, that's a problem, okay? So it just says that his life is expendable. I and mean, when you have a job like that, you know, that's not always the greatest thing. But he's just a regular guy just like every single one of us. And what we learn through reading his story is that God placed a burden on his heart. God touched this guy, Nehemiah, and said, hey, you know what? I need you to do something for me. I need you to go back to Jerusalem, your hometown, and it's in ruins, but I need you to fix it. The walls have been broken down, the gates have been burned, and I need you, Nehemiah, to head back there and rebuild it all. I need you to create a workforce you got to rally the troops, so to speak, and I need you to take on this massive undertaking. Just a regular guy. See, what God gave him that day was what I'm going to call a vision for change, that God went into his life and said, you know what? Things don't always have to be the way that things always are. Life can change. Life can get better. I, as God, want your life to be as good as possible, and so I am calling you, Nehemiah, to carry out a vision for change. And what Adam did for the first two weeks of this series through this message is that he challenged us and asked us the question, well, what breaks your heart? What is God doing in your life? What burden is he putting on your heart for change? Whether it's in your own life, in your your family, at the workplace, in your community, what is he placing on your heart that says, I need you to step up? I need you to follow this vision for change in your life and in the community and make a difference. And we spotlighted this guy, Scott Sonnenberg, one of our attenders here. And God put a, uh, um, you know, a passion into his heart to say, I need you to step up and help the homeless of this city. Because the reality, let's be honest, folks, we live in a city with a ton of homeless folks. And I think, just being honest, we, our hearts have gotten a little hardened to it. We just walk past and we don't really see them. You know, he hates to say that, but that is the truth. And God went to Scott and said, hey, I need you to step up and begin doing a work. And and we don't know what that looks like in your life. Maybe God puts a burden on your heart to start some huge organization. Maybe it's something small like just working on your marriage or trying to get out of debt, okay, or just, just doing something in your life to begin to change your life for good. Now, something we learn about change, 
we learn that change disrupts people's lives. Because when you follow after God, when you follow his vision for change, when you begin to clean up your act, when you begin to live a different life and fix your marriage, and maybe for you it's, you know, beating an addiction or, or, or whatever the case may be, what we learn is that this change disrupts other people's lives because they're watching what you're doing. And they know that they should follow suit. And what you're doing is you are forcing them to examine their own lives. And they see you cleaning up your act. They see you trying to make a difference in your community, and they don't like it. They don't like to realize that you're doing something that they should be doing. So what do they do? They push back. And they push back, and they criticize. Now, I know, because I've heard the stories that God through this series, is doing a lot in the lives of people at this church. we got Scott. We have one family who, whose son's house burned down in Malibu, and a group of them came together and were sending supplies out to Malibu to try to help them. We've got a woman who watches online up in Baltimore, and she was touched by this, and she started this whole thing. We're helping the homeless in her community. And so people in this church are responding to God's call in their life. And these are just the stories that I know. But what I know is this. You're going to need some help. Because when you say yes to God's change, when you say, all right, I'm listening, I'm going to act, I can't just leave you out there. Okay, we have to talk about today, how do you handle opposition once you've said yes to God's vision? Once you say, all right, I'm in it, I'm going to do it. Because once you do that, the world pushes back. And how do you handle that? The criticism and the opposition, the obstacles that the world throws in your face, what do you do with all that? So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4 today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. As always, it's going to be on the screens and here, and you can just follow along. It says, when Sanballat, let me just talk to you about this guy, Sanballat, for a second. I think that's how you pronounce the name. I really have no idea. Sanballat is a local governor, so he's from a town just outside of Jerusalem. And he doesn't like Jerusalem, and he doesn't like the Jews, and he's a major character in today's story. So it says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry, and he was greatly incensed, because he knew, by the way, he knew that if Jerusalem regained power, he would lose some of his power. So he, he, he was not a fan of this happening. So he ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? What, what are those feeble Jews doing? He, he's attacking their character. He's saying, what are those feeble Jews doing? Well, come on, this is a joke, right? He goes, will they restore their wall? He, he's, a, he's attacking even their ability that they could handle some project like this. Will they offer sacrifices? He's attacking the very notion that they'll be celebrating, that they're going to finish this thing and they can celebrate and they can offer sacrifices. He goes, are they ever going to even do this? I mean, come on. He goes, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are. He's attacking the very feasibility of the project. He says, this is impossible what they're doing. Come on. This is never going to happen. And his buddy joins in. It says, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even if a fox climbed on it, he would break down the wall of stones. This guy is saying, look, this piece of garbage these guys are doing, they have no clue what they're doing. They should just give up. Even if an animal touched this wall that they're killing themselves to build, it would just completely fall apart. 
Now, criticism travels, as you know, right? Very rarely are we getting good news in life. It's always criticism. And the Jews heard this. They understood that the enemy was saying this about them, but they kind of let it roll off their shoulders. They just said, you know what? It's okay. We're just going to keep doing our job. And they kept building, and they kept building in spite of the criticism. Word got back to Sambalot that they didn't stop. And when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the men of Eshdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. I mean, they were just like, what? I mean, with all the trash talk, these guys are still moving ahead. They're not stopping. Now, the reason they're so angry okay, is that historically speaking, whenever Jerusalem has power, whenever the Jews are protected and they have power and God has power in the region, it's bad for business. Any group that's not a follower for God, it is bad for business. And if the Jews can rebuild this wall, it is bad for business for Sanballat. So he says, we have to stop this. This cannot continue the criticism. That's not working. Let's go a step further. He goes, so they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up the trouble against it. So Nehemiah is the one who's writing this whole autobiography, if you will. And so he shifts scenes and he goes, all right, let's go back behind the walls. Let me just show you what's happening to the Jews now as all this is going on with their enemies. It says, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, you know, the strength of our laborers, it's given out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot begin to rebuild this wall. The criticisms, they're starting to land. They're starting to impact their hearts. They're starting to impact their minds. And they go, we, 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 our strength, we can't do this. This thing that God has called us to do, Nehemiah, this thing that you're asking of us, we, we don't think we can do this. And they, and they don't stop there. And they say, also, our enemies, I don't know if you've heard Nehemiah, okay, but they're saying, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and we'll put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near the enemies he's talking about came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. I mean, Nehemiah is sitting in the midst of all this and he's hearing the fellow Jews coming up to him and going, we can't handle this. The work is too hard. We can't do this. The stones are too heavy and, and, and they're going to kill us. This thing that you asked us to do, they are going to come and stop us and they are going to kill us. And so what do they do? They quit. They put their shovels down, they start to walk away. See, what we touched on in the beginning of the message is this idea that when a vision for change goes public, many will not be happy. When you begin to follow after God's footsteps, when, he, when you begin to follow his plan for change in your life, whatever that looks like, people are going to say, you can't, you don't have the ability, who do you think you are? And your life, as you try to better things, it becomes a mirror, okay? And you're reminding other people of what they ought to be doing, but are not. And instead of changing their life, what do they do? They criticize you. And they criticize you, and they criticize you, and they criticize you, and they don't ever stop until you relent. Until you give up. Until you put your tools down and you said, you know what? They're right. I can't do it. See, what Nehemiah learned that day is that nothing will kill vision like criticism. Nothing will kill God's vision in your heart like the criticism of others. And folks, it's always the people that are closest. It's always family or friends that look at you and they go, what do you think you're doing? And it's so disturbing because, you know, you look at your own self and you go, I'm just, I'm just trying to do right. 
I'm just trying to do what God asked me to do. I'm just trying to fix my marriage. I'm just trying to beat an addiction. I'm just trying to get out of debt. Why are you hating on me? Why are you not encouraging me? Why are you criticizing me and telling me I can't do this? Nothing zaps your strength, the fire, or the desire like the criticism of others. So when we read this story, we learn a couple of things from Nehemiah, a couple of ways that we can learn how to respond when critics come at us and obstacles are put in our way. So the first thing we learn is that we need to pray. Now, before you kind of go and say, oh, typical church, you know, boilerplate response, pray, just stick with me for a second here, okay, before you, you know, check out on this one. Here, listen to this prayer that Nehemiah makes to God. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. So far, so good. And he says, turn their insults back on their heads. He's basically saying, everything they're saying about us, God, flip it back on them. Help them to be on the receiving end of all this garbage that they're throwing at us. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Probably reading this and going, what are you talking about? Basically, he's painting this picture. He's saying, God, you know when marauders come in and they just wreck the joint? Do that to them, please. Can you just destroy them for us? That would, I really appreciate that. He says, do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. He's saying, don't even forgive them. All the sin in their life, let it sit there. Let them die in their sins. Let them just, just don't even forgive them at all. Now, that's a prayer, right? You wish you could pray like that. You thought like that. Yeah, we've all thought these things, but never, we don't ever pray these things. And see, a lot of theologians were looking at this passage, and I was kind of just researching it, and they're trying to put a spiritual spin on it, in a will. They kind of say, well, no one religious or spiritual would be thinking these things, of course, right? So what Nehemiah is doing is he's, in essence, praying or acting on behalf of God. They say, well, God is the person who, who made up this plan, and these critics and these enemies, they're the ones who are effectively coming after God. And so Nehemiah is, in a sense, praying as though God is thinking. I don't buy that at all. I just don't buy that. I think he's angry. He's just angry. Think about what's going on here. Nehemiah had a very cushy job. Except for the fact that he might die from poison. Other than that, it was great, okay? He lived in a palace. He had all the wine that he could possibly want. He had food. He had it all. It was great. And then God put a burden on his heart. He didn't ask for this change. And he schlepped his way back to Jerusalem, okay, this heap of a town. And he's had to get these troops, trying to rally the troops to build these, these walls. And they don't really know what they're doing. And now he's got these people from other towns who are trash-talking them. And they're just jealous of what they're doing. And he's angry. And I believe that many of us get angry. I think here's the deal. I think when critics come at us, we respond in two ways. I think we either attack back or we withdraw. And it kind of depends on what your personality is. Maybe you're a person who attacks back. Someone criticizes you, and you're right back in their face. And it's tit for tat, and the next thing you know, you're in a full-blown argument. Maybe you're somebody who, when you get criticized, you kind of turn inwards. And it's not that you're not angry, but you just begin to internalize it. And you get angrier, and you get angrier, and you turn in on yourself, and the next thing you know, you've got some anxiety disorder, and it turns into depression. And you withdraw. But Nehemiah teaches us a healthier way. He goes, guys, don't, don't, don't do that. Here, here's what he's saying. He goes, you need to redirect your emotions to God. 
Nehemiah is venting his emotions back to God. He's not snapping back. He's not internalizing it. He's bringing it all to God. Now, you may read this prayer and you say, well, John, can you actually talk like that to God? I mean, can you pray to God like this with, with so much anger and, and, and hostility? Yeah, you can. This is biblical. In fact, the entire book of Psalms is almost just that. This guy, David, is just venting his anger or venting his, his discouragement to God time and time again. And I was reading a couple of the Psalms. I'm going to put one up here in a second. But in this one Psalm, David is, is praying to God and basically asking God to destroy his enemy. This person who has, who has come against him, who has done all these things, he is asking God to absolutely destroy this enemy of his. And he wraps up by saying that the enemy is actually his friend. And, and, and I just read that and I go, I mean, it's how often in life is it the people that are closest to you that end up being your biggest critics that say, you can't do this? David ends that psalm by saying, cast your cares, whatever they may be, on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. See, so what he's saying here is saying, God is inviting every single one of you to pour out your emotions on him, your anger, your disappointment, your, con your confusion. Bring it to God. And there's a reason for it. The reason you bring this to God is because prayer positions you to respond to critics. When the critics come at you, you start to get angry, and maybe you're a person who wants to snap back, maybe you're a person who wants to withdraw, Nehemiah is saying, bring it to God. Because what happens is in this prayer is that God begins to clear your focus. He begins to show you exactly what is happening. And he saves you from a couple of things. Okay? Number one, if you're a person who attacks back, you bring it to God, you won't fall in their trap. Because they are trying to lure you into an argument. If they know that's how you act, they are trying to lure you into an argument. If you're someone who withdraws, they're trying to make you withdraw because they want you to relent. They want you out of the game. They want you to take you off course. And Nehemiah is saying, don't let them. Don't fall for it. Bring it to God. He will give you clear focus, and he will help you respond accordingly and appropriately. The second thing we learn is that we learn to remember. So to catch up to date, these Jews now have essentially almost walked away. They're frightened for their life. They've been told that they can't handle anything. And so Nehemiah now says this. He goes, when I saw their fear, he's looking out of the crowd and he sees their fears. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people. And he said, do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. He goes, don't be afraid. Remember God and fight. Fight for your house. Fight for your life. Fight for your marriage. Fight for addiction. Fight for debt. Whatever God has called you, whatever that vision for change in your life is, he's saying, don't be afraid of the critics. Fight and remember God. See, one of the things that we learn through this, and maybe you've already seen this in your own life, is that when we're criticized, we tend to second-guess ourselves. Your friends, your family, strangers, they find out what you're doing and they go, you, my friend, are incompetent. You don't have the ability to do 
what you think you can do. You don't have the skill set. You don't have the smarts. Who do you think you are? And after a while, those, those insults and, the, and those criticisms, they start to land. And you start to listen to them. And you begin to say, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe I am incompetent. Maybe I don't have the ability to beat this or to make my life better. And Nehemiah is hearing everyone say this, and he goes, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. Remember the Lord who was great and awesome. He goes, you are losing sight. He goes, you didn't think of this plan. It wasn't your idea to better your life. This was God's plan for your life. Don't lose sight of this. And it's almost like he's saying, and, and let's talk about the critics for a second. And let's just get real about what they're saying. Because half of what they're saying might be true. You might be incompetent. You might not have the skill set to do what God has called you to do. But your enemy, those critics, they've forgotten one major aspect, and it's God. They've forgotten all about God. See, the problem is that when you evaluate criticism in the light of your own ability, it can be intimidating. You think of the changes that need to be made in your own life, the changes that need to be made at, at school or in work or, or whatever God has put on your heart to do. You start looking at these things that you have to do and you go, who am I to do this? I mean, I mean really, who am I to do this? I've got to be kidding myself if I think that I can make a change. But what Nehemiah is saying is that God has called you to do this. He has placed this burden on your heart. And it's not according to your ability, but his. And that's a big difference. He's saying, don't lose sight, folks. This isn't about you. Yeah, he's asked you to do it, but it's not about you. It's about him. Paul, who's one of the authors in the New Testament, talks about this very issue. And, and he's, in a way, recapping a conversation that he had with God. And it's in 2 Corinthians. And, he's, and he says this. He goes, the Lord answered me. This is Jesus. He says, I am all you need. I give you my loving favor, and my power works best in weak people. Isn't that amazing? The power of Jesus, he says, works best in weak people. And Paul hears this, and he goes, oh, this is great news. He goes, I am happy to be weak and have troubles so I can have Christ's power in me. I receive joy when I'm weak. He goes on, he says, I receive joy when people talk against me and make it hard for me and try to hurt me and make trouble for me. I receive joy when all these things come to me because of Christ. And one of the most famous lines in Scripture, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, what Nehemiah is saying and what, what Paul is, is bringing to light here, he goes, guys, you need to let criticism and opposition be a reminder of the true power within you. Because you may be strong people, you may be smart people, but it's not about you. When God has called you to do something in this life, no matter what it is, big or small, he's going to help you accomplish it. He has promised that when you say yes to Jesus, that you have the power of God inside of you, the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is inside of every single one of you and will help you accomplish the change that God has asked you to make. The last thing we learn through this whole story 
is that as you begin to follow up and carry out the vision that God has asked you to do, you're going to need to learn how to revise the plan. Now, Nehemiah has heard that they are under attack. It's imminent, so to speak, okay? So he's got to change the plan. Here's what we read. He says, you know, from that day on, we heard that news. He goes, from that day on, half my men, they did the work while the other half are equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor, the officers, they posted themselves behind the wall. Those who carried materials, they did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore a sword at the side as he worked. Basically, what's going on here is Nehemiah is saying, look, in the beginning, 100% of our attention, all of us, we were on that wall, but things have changed. We can't do that anymore. We've got to reshuffle the deck. We've got to change the plan. Same vision. Walls got to be built. Different plan. And see, what Nehemiah understood and what we have to understand as we begin to follow after God is that there is a difference between the vision God gives you and the plans you use to carry them out. Plans and visions are different. We tend to think they're the same things. They're not. Often, many times in this job and my previous one, people will come up to me and they say, hey, John, I got a great idea, a great ministry idea. And they kind of walk me through the whole thing, all their plans. And at the end, they go, yeah, I don't know about that. I'm just not, I'm just not sure that's, that's for this church. And it's like watching a balloon being deflated. Because I said this, I said, I, I, just, I just don't think so. It's like you can see all the air being taken out of their sails. And they kind of walk away disappointed and discouraged. Why? Because we tend to evaluate the success of the vision according to the success of the plans. And they're different. And you must learn to distinguish between God's vision that he's given you and the plans you're using to carry them out. Because most likely, you've come up with those plans. I don't know if God has given you the plans, but you've come up with them. And very rarely does plan A work. That's why there's plan B and plan C and plan D. I like to say it like this. Visions are refined, but they don't change. Plans are revised, and they rarely stay the same. So when God puts this burden on your heart, you may not know exactly what it is right away, but you're going to pray to God for clarity. God, help me to understand exactly what it is that you would like me to do. And after time, the plan is revised. The vision, I mean, pardon, the vision is refined. But if your plan doesn't work, you don't give up. You don't walk. You go back to God. You say, all right, God, that didn't work. I know you want me to make this change, but this didn't work. What's plan B? And you try plan B. Maybe that works a little better. doesn't work perfectly. You go back. And what God is doing through this process is to make you more dependent on him. And after time, your plans will align with his plans, and your will will align with his will, and when that comes together, that vision takes off, the change happens, and the world is never the same. So I wanted to wrap up by telling you a story, um, a story about when you find out eventually what your vision is, and, and what happens when the plans don't always work as you thought they were going to work. I want to talk to you about my dad told him I was going to tell this story, and he was excited. So um, about, let me think, 10 years ago or so, 
Um, my dad felt this burden on his heart to do something more. I think a lot of us kind of feel that in our lives. We kind of feel God saying, I need you to begin doing more. And you don't really even know what that is. You just, it's this feeling that he wants more from your life. And, and that's what my dad felt. It was kind of this ambiguous call to do more. And so he prayed. And, and he continually prayed and said, God, can you bring clarity to this call that you're, that you're placing on my heart? And eventually, after much prayer, uh, it became clear that God wanted my dad to start a Bible study. This is what he just felt. It. One, one day it was that, it's it. God wants me to start a Bible study. Now, my dad is not involved with ministry at all. He's an, he's an attorney. And I think like many of us, when we finally recognize the call in our lives, when we finally realize what God wants us to do, we kind of sit on it. And we kind of just look at it and we go, mm, I don't know if I can do that. I'm not sure I'm equipped to make this kind of a change. And my dad looked at this call to do Bible study, and he goes, I've never been to seminary. I've never taught a day in my life, and he sat on it. Very shortly, maybe a week or two later, he was in church over in Naples. Guy comes up to him from his own neighborhood, a guy named Tom, comes right up to him and goes, John, we got to start a Bible study. My dad was like, whoa, okay. And what he likes to say is that when Tom came up to him and said this, he didn't use his typical, what he describes as church weasel language, which is like when someone asks you to do something and you go, well, let me pray about that, okay? That's code for I don't want to do it, okay? My dad said, I'm in. Let's do it. And so they went back that week and they began talking about this vision of starting a Bible study. And they said, well, you know what? We both had this call to do this Bible study. We live in the same neighborhood. God, obviously, I think he wants us to reach this neighborhood. And it was exciting. The whole family was getting pumped up about it. And I remember that week, they created these inviter cards. They printed 250 inviter cards. They, they were calling it the um, Port Royal Bible study. That was the neighborhood they lived in over there. And my dad went to every single house in the neighborhood, handed them a card, invited them. Monday, 8 a.m., my house, you're invited. It's going to be a Bible study. It's going to be great. That weekend, we went to Costco. We bought a bunch of chairs, put them out like this. Tom went out and got pads of paper printed out with the logo that he created. Okay? We put them out. Monday morning shows up, 7 a.m. My dad's buddy Carlo comes by, makes the coffee, puts out the danishes, and we are just, we're riding high because we are following after that vision that God gave, you know, my dad, and this was so exciting. 8 a.m., not a single person shows up. 8.15, nobody. No one came. And it was just, it was like, oh, what's going on? We prayed about this. We were, we were so certain that God wanted to start a Bible study. So Carlo was there and he said, you know, nobody from the neighborhood came, but we could invite a couple of friends and maybe next week they'll come. And so they said, all right, you know, call a couple of your buddies and the following week, five people came. So that's good. I mean, you know, you're going in the right direction, and it wasn't half bad. And so the next week, 10 people came in the right direction. And it kind of hit like the 10 to 15 mark, and it just kind of stopped there. Because, you know, when you're in a small group in a house, it gets a little crowded. And so one of the guys that was coming said to my dad, he goes, you know, I know you've got this vision to do a Bible study, and, and, and I know you, you thought it was to reach your neighborhood, but no one's come from your neighborhood. I have an office building, 
and I'll let you use my office building if you want. It's not in the neighborhood, but it's centrally located in Naples. If you want to move this Bible study, you can have this place free of charge. And so Tom and my dad prayed about it because they still felt, they just felt like, you know, God wants us to do this. I thought, but plan A didn't work. Do you want us to move it? And so they said, all right, we'll move it. And so they moved to the centrally located Naples. The next week, 30 people. The week after that, 40 people. The week after that, 50 and 60 and 70. And 10 years later, they're averaging almost 250 people that go to this group. And it just shows that God can put a vision in your life, but your plan A and B and C may not be what he wants. And you got to keep going back and you got to say, all right, God, this didn't work, but I'm not giving up. What do you want in this vision? How do we make this work? And so two men didn't give up when no one showed. They kept praying. They said, God, if this is what you want, show us how to do it. One day, a guy from a local radio station came to this, liked what he heard. And he said, I want to put this on the radio. And it started going out on local radio. Then a national radio place heard this and said, we like it. And now on Saturdays and Sundays, these lessons are going out to 400 radio stations across America. They never planned for this. It was just two guys who felt like they had to start a Bible study. And it just shows you that when God puts a call in your life, say yes. And don't be afraid when A, B, and C of your plans don't work out. Just keep going back to him. What's the practical? If it's your first week at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So for this whole series, I would just put the first practical as this. Don't expect an easy road. If God has given you a vision for change in your life, Whatever that looks like, from helping the homeless, to getting out of debt, to making your marriage work, to beating an addiction, to maybe starting a Bible study, I don't know what it looks like. When you say yes, don't expect it to be easy. Your critics are going to pop out of the woodwork. I can guarantee it. And obstacles will be thrown in your way. The world will push back, but do not give up. Also, don't lose sight of the why. Very easy to lose sight of the why. Remember, God is trying to do a work in your life. He's trying to do a work in the lives of the people around you. But this isn't about you. It's about God. And ultimately, when you say yes to that vision that God has put on your heart, you will bring glory to God's name. And the people around you and the people in your community and the people in your city will see that life doesn't always have to be the same and it can change and it's because of God. When critics say you can't, remember that God can. He has promised to be with you, to give you the strength and the power to do whatever he has asked you to do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to come here today. Lord, it's not easy to wake up on a Sunday morning, and I just want to thank you that, that every single person that is here has come here today. And I, and I just pray that I know that you've got a call on every single one of our hearts. 
that something in every single one of our lives needs to be changed. And it's scary. And we think that, who am I to make this change, Lord? Can life really get better? Can I really beat this? Can my marriage be saved, Lord? And I just pray that today you would allow every single person in this room to feel your spirit in a powerful way. Lord, that you would energize them to understand that you are with them, that you have called them to this change, Lord, that you would empower them to do the things that you've called them to do. Lord, if anyone in this room right now is facing discouragement, if they've been beaten down by society, if they've been beaten down by friends, by family, who have told them, you're a loser, you will never be able to do this, who do you think you are? I pray that today, Lord, this would just be a, a, a breath of encouragement, that your Holy Spirit would work in a, as a bomb in their life, Lord, that you would heal the pain of that criticism and that you would allow them to know that you are with them right here, right now. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.